Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Maeve Marsden, and you're listening to Queer Stories. This week, Damien Webb is a proud member of the Palawa diaspora, originally from Lutruita, Tasmania. He has worked in state libraries for more than 13 years and is currently manager of the Indigenous Engagement Branch at the State Library of New South Wales, where he performed this story at a special Queer Stories event in the Mitchell Reading Room in June 2023. Like many good stories, mine starts long before the arrival of straight white men. It was a warm sunny morning 43,000 years ago, roughly 15,000 Saturn returns when my ancestors and transestors decided that the mainland was really not vibing for us anymore. <laughs> Accounts vary as to the instigating factor slash final straw, but I have to imagine that my old people were at least a little bit like me and my family. Probably pretty queer, definitely bolshy. They were looking for a place of their own and likely trying to get away from some mad curries, and so decided to cross the treacherous land bridge to Lutruita beset on all sides by an angry sea and hectic megafauna. To hear some aunties tell this yarn is a real treat, but like so many of our stories, it was shattered and split by colonization. For years, these histories were thought lost, only to be found hiding under our beds and in our elders' memories, encoded and safe, but incomplete. So it goes that our wisest and most powerful matriarch felt us growing too big and too strong and she and our elders decided we should seek somewhere to grow apart from our Koori cousins. We trudged to the shore, where she split the sea with her wadi, holding back the waters with her magic and the sheer force of her will. She held this space and walked while kin and clan ducked and weaved across the rocks on an ever-shrinking strip of mountainous land. As we scrambled towards our new home and away from the rising sea, Auntie turned, and in a moment of pure Black Lady Moses magic, rose the sea behind us and closed the pass. I tell this story of Palawa Hexodus because it lives in my bones and the bones of my family, but not in any archive, manuscript, photograph or recording. Our stories were strong because we held them and carried them, but the requirements of our living bodies as vessels rendered them inherently fragile. I've often found this to be true about queer stories too. Our distrust and defiance of the state and its institutions has kept us alive but it's also created massive blind spots in our knowledge of ourselves and our histories. It makes it harder for every new generation of queers to remember that we have always been here and we always will, and allows every new generation of conservatives to claim that we are some kind of new trend or deviation. So look, life was pretty great until it wasn't. Auntie had nailed it in terms of choosing our new home and we would thrive in splendid isolation until the arrival of violent, pale, and curious men. A situation I'm sure that more than a few people in this room can relate to. What followed was a prolonged black war and a soul-destroying attempt at genocide, after which the sustained erasure of my family's blackness and queerness continued. 
My family would settle into a stable pattern of repression and assimilation. And in fact, my mother is still widely regarded at family barbecues as the first queer of family ever had. Quaint the lesbians. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We dance now into the late 1980s and to a poor suburb called Clarendon Vale. Many of my aunties lived only a few blocks from my nan, and you couldn't go more than a street without bumping into a cousin. For my ma, my sister, and me, Nan's house was a place of safety, protected by the dual forces of Nan's hidden machete and her eternally boiling mixed veg. I realize now that despite generations of poverty, repression, and assimilation, it was also a space which quietly and surprisingly held my growing blackness and queerness. I like to quip that Jesus made me gay, but honestly, Chuck Norris and Boney M were doing a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> I spent many, many nights sleeping at Nan's in a special room she had lovingly crafted. Allow me to paint you a picture of this accidentally queer nursery. Directly opposite the bed and staring down at me was a massive portrait of Jesus. He had his tits out and his heart was exposed <laughs> and dramatically aflame. It was painted in a realistic style and with a gaze I would describe now as power bottom. So under the loving stare of power bottom Jesus, four-year-old me would lie on a bed, heavy with frilled doilies and illuminated only by a fiber optic rainbow lamp. I know, right? I maintain that this triptych of fabulous forces was more than enough to fan the spark of queerness I was born with, but holy shit, man kicked it up a notch. I kid you not, this woman had one cassette that would play on loop every single night that I stayed there in that room. The best of Boney M. <laughs> to be honest, my nan would have been mortified, particularly at the time, to think that she had played any part in furthering the gay agenda. It was around this time that a chain reaction of traumatic events kicked off and resulted in my ma coming out. First to herself, then to her boyfriend, and finally to her sisters and mother. Before you ask, my ma didn't really do a big coming out for me and my sister. And to be honest, I don't really remember it being a big deal to anyone except the rest of our family and obviously every straight person we would encounter for the next 28 years. It was not long before we left the safety of Nan's house to go to a women's shelter named Annie Kenny, and our family's real queer life began. I had always grown up around women and already understood the dangers and limitations of straight cis men, but being amongst activist feminist and dykes over the next few years clad me in the most wonderful armour. I highly recommend everyone be raised by lesbians. <laughs> Seriously. These early experiences with queerness were exclusively with lesbians, and specifically with the denim flannel and paisley crews. This was partially because we had grown up poor and occasionally on farms, but also just because it was now 1991, and lesbian share houses also shared wardrobes. It was at Annie Kenny that we met Joe Poodle, actual name. Joe became a friend of my ma and already knew my future other mother. Joe was a feminist, a fuckboy, and a sex worker with a penchant for pills. She lived at the top of some stairs in a rambling rundown share house in Hobart, and her room was full of fabrics, makeup, and femme wonder. I remember sitting in her boudoir and staring into her iconic threefold vanity as Joe would dispense advice while she was getting ready for work. And Lord, it was the gayest advice you could imagine. 
a land that lashes could be curled with medieval wands, that clothes could be endlessly recycled into increasingly deranged expressions of glamour and personality. As I would sit and watch Jo expertly balancing her cigarette while curling her lashes, she would speak in a gravelly and loving alto voice. Never forget, beauty is pain, darling. Like Nan's room before it, Jo's place nurtured the glowing ember of gay within me in a way that I certainly didn't understand at the time. I had never met a creature like her before, and Auntie Jo armed me with the knowledge that feminism, activism, and glamour could exist in the same body. I was hooked, babes. We would spend a couple of years in various share houses as my ma grew more staunch and strong in her identity. These were wonderful years, but the ignorance of many of the middle-class white women who occupied these spaces began to be less humorous and more suffocating. Though my mother does tell a story about be being given a lesbian sex manual when she first came out. <laughs> Some homework. Um, by my auntie Wendy, who actually remains one of my mother's dearest friends. So they're sitting and drinking Twining's Earl Grey and looking through the various diagrams when Wendy offered my mum a valuable and learned life lesson. Never use avocado in food play. <laughs> my mum responded simply and with great poverty, what the fuck is an avocado? <laughs> later, at, <laughs> later at a women's dance, my mother stormed the stage and I recall her yanking the sound cables, rendering a deafening silence upon the room. She proceeded to read every single person there for filth over the lack of intersectionality within the movement, which was excluding so many black lesbians like her and their children. From the crucible of these incredible spaces, our family became indestructible. But like our ancestors 40,000 years earlier, we were getting itchy feet, and there was a growing sense that the, this island was not big enough or brave enough to hold us. Once it became clear that my mother's lesbianism was not simply a phase, her sisters and many other members of our family rallied behind my nan in demonizing us and attempting to remove me and my sister through the family court. The court case was eventually dismissed, but not before many of my aunties had testified vile lies or publicly disclosed my mother's past abuses and traumas. It's a hard bell to unring and it would be many years before my family would grow the fuck up and earn a place in our lives again. I distinctly remember standing on the lawn of my nan's house, the house I had spent so many hours being held and fed and loved in, as my nan screamed that we would burn in hell. The safety I'd felt in that house for so long was shattered. And so we left to cross the same land bridge as our ancestors, only this time we would soar hundreds of meters above it in the economy cabin of a rickety ferry. With a mob behind us who no longer felt like kin, and my mother stepping fearlessly into the role of magic woman and matriarch, we headed back toward the distant shores of our Koori cousins, carrying our stories, our memories, and our wounds with us. I have spent 15 years in libraries like the one we are in tonight, holding space for others to find and tell their stories. Libraries are places in which we often feel watched, but we rarely feel seen. And it is a privilege to wedge open the creaking doors of these houses of memory to be someone's rainbow lamp in a dark room, to make sure we are not erased again. Sometimes, on a good day, I feel every bit like a black lady Moses, holding space with queer magic and pushing back a crushing tide to protect my tribe. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, share your favourite tales on the socials, and follow Queer Stories on Facebook for updates. 
If you enjoy queer stories, consider supporting the project on Patreon. Check out the link in the episode description. Finally, for late night ramblings, gay shit, and photos of me trying to garden with a baby on my back, follow Maeve Marsden on Twitter and Instagram. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.